You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. It's good to be king, if just for a while, to be there in velvet, yeah, to give them a smile. Thanks for downloading this week's episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore, moderator this week and assistant professor of English and director of composition culture over at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined this fine afternoon by Michael Farmer, uh, a graduate student, just one oral exam short of ABD. Michael, how are you feeling about that? I am feeling good, but I am actually more than just the oral exam. I still have to take my Spanish research language test, which I believe is going to cost me $3,000 next semester. Because <laughs> you have to be registered to take it. That's wow, lame. David. So, right. <laughs> uh, David, let's see if you can let me be lighthearted. <sighs> also joining me, uh, the Anglo-Saxonist marauder of the Park Hall basement, Mr. David Grubbs. How are you doing, David? I'm rotting happily as usual. All right. I, I have to I have to correct you for a second here, Nathan. Have I ever <laughs> let you be lighthearted? Well, true enough. I, I thought I, my I, role I, on this show was general bring down. <laughs> well, good point. Well, at any rate, if you want to find something else to bring you down, we do have a blog at christianhumanist.org slash chb. Uh, this week we've got the normal Bible post. We've got uh, finally, my last Dante post that I was supposed to write back in July, I finally got it up there. Uh, we've also got some links posts uh, upcoming, so keep checking back there. We'll have good stuff for you as well as notes for this show. Poor, uh, as far uh, as poor Nathan week, has to totally cover the blog because David and I don't write anything. Uh. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, Michael. <laughs> but you were thinking it, and so were our listeners. I just, just want to <laughs> let them know I'm aware. <laughs> Uh, Michael, we did get a couple emails from Sam Mulberry that gave you a bit of offense this week. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to vent, man. Oh, it didn't give me offense. It, it wasn't an email. He said it on his, um, he said it on the CWC podcast. Oh, that's he, right. That's right. He said that we're at our best when we discuss pop cultural stuff, which, I mean, obviously I took to mean that we're no good at all when we discuss, uh, intellectual matters, that the only thing we're good for is talking about ephemera, but I'm sure that's not what Sam meant. But we're easily offended. <laughs> My so wife was making touchy. fun of me for feeling that way this morning, and I said, like you wouldn't. <laughs> it's just been one of them days, hadn't it? It has been one of those days. Yeah. Well, at any rate, our listeners should know that since Michael is going to be taking his oral exams this week, we are going to be taking a week off from the normal podcast. There will be something of an announcement or a one-man monologue sort of post going on next Tuesday, uh, but we'll be picking up as normal in the first week of October, and we'll talk a little bit about what that topic's going to be at the end of the episode, as always. Today, our topic is kingship. And once again, I have proven to myself that I can bite off more than I can chew. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a topic in which we will not be talking about the divine kings of the Persian Empire, the Egyptian pharaoh, Queen Elizabeth I, King James, Charles, <laughs> Edward, or George. Uh, and yet BB we King. are still full. We might get to BB King, so don't, don't make that promise. Uh, this is just a gigantic topic. Uh, so I'm just going to tell our listeners right up front. This is an entirely idiosyncratic discussion. These are things that I'm interested in, and you're just going to have to live with it. So, David, <laughs> with all of that on the table, uh, one thing that we can't go without on the Christian Humanist Podcast is some kind of venture into the Bible. Today, we're actually going to make two of those. And one of them, of course, uh, is your namesake, King David. He pops up all over the Bible. Uh, he mm -hmm. gets mentioned in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, all over the place. But the sources I'd like to talk about for a moment— I'd like you to talk about for a moment, our first and second <laughs> Samuel, first Chronicles and the Psalms. I mean, we've got three sources there. What picture do we get of the early Israelite monarchy out of those sources? Ooh, um, early Israelite monarchy. Um, I guess we got to pick up, um, with, uh, 
the fact that Saul was, uh, uh, let's see, Samuel was, I guess, the last, uh, the last judge of Israel, I suppose we could say. Um, and the people, uh, wanted a king like everyone around them. And so, uh, you want a king, you get a king. Um, Samuel anoints Saul, the incredibly tall, embarrassed guy who wants to hide out in the back of the crowd instead of getting, you know, crowned or whatever. Um, and we, you know, you can read about Saul's reign in First Samuel. But uh, ultimately, Saul makes a series of, uh, of errors. Um, some of them sinful, some of them just seem uh, to our eyes uh, perhaps impulsive, maybe a little getting too eager and jumping the gun however we want to view those things soul ultimately ends up being rejected by god um and so god commands the prophet samuel to go to the home of jesse uh, a man from the tribe of judah and he's a good soul- old boy Never yeah. no harm <laughs> i was just thinking of jesse's girl by rick springfield i was trying uh, to figure out a way to integrate that since you know i'm at my best when i talk about pop culture <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, Jesse had a lot of tall sons too. Um, I'm guessing it, it, it's kind of funny because I mean, it, it, you know, height seems to have been a serious thing because uh, after Samuel looks at the first, uh, you know, of Jesse's sons, he's like, "Well, there's a tall guy. That, I bet this is it." And God tells him, "Don't look at his, his appearance or his height. Um, you know, man doesn't look at what God looks at. He looks at the heart." And after a series of, of rejected tall sons, uh, we ultimately get to David, who I'm going to infer was short. <laughs> um, and he's the one who gets uh, he's the one who gets picked by God, and Samuel anoints him, um, which is problematic because Saul's still king. So I guess there's two of the Lord's anointed kind of running around now. Which um, makes for, you know, a really awkward position for David. So, uh, even though David has been anointed king, uh, he can he sol- he serves King Saul uh, faithfully. Um, initially, uh, as as a court musician to you know calm down Saul when he's in a foul mood, um, but also that later as a uh, as a military man, as a champion, uh, after uh, David kills Goliath. Um, and even after Saul turns against David, uh, David still refuses to oppose him because he won't harm the Lord's anointed. Um, and even after Saul and Jonathan's death, when um, one of uh, Saul's generals, Abner, makes uh, another of Saul's sons, Ashbal, uh, uh, he you know makes him king of the rest of Israel, and the and the Judeans. Um, declare that David is their king, uh, there's a war between Ashbal and David. And and even then, when a couple of uh, Ashbal's men uh, assassinate him and bring his head to David, um, he has those assassins executed because, um, because they've murdered their king. So I think it's interesting that one of the first glimpses that we have of King David is how much he ha- how much respect he has for the office of king, even when he knows that God's anointed him to be the proper king, and the ones that he's opposing are not the ones that 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 have God's support. Right, and of course, in I think an intentionally comic moment by the end of Second Samuel. Anyone who brings a message to David that someone has died is afraid that he's going to get killed. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, well, to the point where you know Absalom, you know David's son, you know stages an insurrection and gets executed for it. I think properly, and David goes into mourning, and you know his head general comes out like, "Come on, David, you know we just had a war." You know, <laughs> to, you know, give give the men, you know. Give the men some credit. We've we've been defending your throne, and now you know you're going to go into mourning. You know, tried to throw you out and kill you, and basically publicly slept with all your wives. So you know. But he is his uh, son. I mean, blood well, is thicker than water, or whatever. Yeah, e- even, whatever that even so. Means. 
even so, sometimes David's morning priorities don't um, don't quite jive with what the people around him think is sensible. Um, as far as what are the duties of the Lord's anointed, what are the duties of, of a king of Israel? They seem to be mainly military. Um, he uh, he leads several campaigns against Philistines and Moabites and Ammonites and various Ite type people. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has a a, a a posse of mighty men uh, who I, I guess are kind of precursors to Knights of the Round Table or right. Charlemagne's like the Paladins. Knights of the Round Table are largely foreigners. Right, right. It, it describes him as, you know, he's he was a Tecmenonite or whatever. Right, and um, most famously Uriah the Hittite. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's 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 assembled this, you know, is you know, Israelite Justice League of of <laughs> basically foreign uh, you know, foreign hired guns and uh, so, some of whom have some somewhat unbelievable exploits. Like the guy who cures, kills eight hundred guys with one spear, in a in a single battle, you know, um, that's Kill a lot of guys. With one stroke. Well, yeah, I mean that's a, that's a, that's a lot of guys. Right. But I guess right. if you're packing them all in there, you know, you can only have four or five coming at you at once. Maybe it was right. just a really big spear. <laughs> Could be. Well, um, really, David, that's the tragedy of the Absalom revolt: is that Absalom actually gathers an Israelite army around him. And David has to bring this army of foreign mercenaries to kill Israelites to restore himself to the throne. Right. Yeah. That. That's a. <sighs> but I mean, Second Samuel yeah. is a deeply, deeply tragic book. So, like, you should expect yeah. that. Well, I think the fact that modern readers, whenever they hit something with "ite" on the end of it, they kind of go "meh, meh, meh, ite." Right. <laughs> um, I think are not as aware of. Um, sort of the multicultural wonderland that is David's kingdom. Oh, sure, um, sure. David, but, whose grandfather yeah. was a Moabite. Well, it, it, exactly. His, his grandmother was a Moabite. He, um, you know, according to, uh, you know, the law, um, David shouldn't even be permitted into um, the uh, the assembly of the people at the tabernacle, much less be king. I wonder if they asked for his birth certificate. Um. Probably not. Oh, Michael. <laughs> yeah, the Lord's anointing trumps that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's always interesting uh... because when he fights the Moabites, I mean, if you read that account in Second Samuel, mm-hmm. he basically commits a genocide against them. He slaughters fully a third of the Moabites. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, I guess in that case, blood uh, blood is only thicker than water within one generation. Yeah. <laughs> um. Still, um, looking at the life of David, it is good to be the king. Um, he had a palace designed and built by Phoenicians. He had all these wives and concubines. He had a crown that apparently weighed, weighed something north of 75 pounds, which he, he gets as, as booty in one of his conquests. Um, so, you know, he's, he's got pretty sweet digs. So it's um, true that heavy is the head that wears the crown. Well, yeah, because the crown's heavy. Um <laughs> And also, uh, this this was interesting to me. He doesn't, um, you know, the the kinds of functions that we often associate with ancient kingship are uh, military functions, sacral functions, and judicial functions. Um, I don't see, I, I don't recall any accounts of King David exercising a judicial role per se. But although he does forgive sins, right? But there is that moment where he, um, uh, when he returns the ark. And he, he he leads the procession the, the procession of the ark dancing before the Lord, and then he offers sacrifices. So right. he does seem to be you know occupying some kind of a sacral position, which weirdly, since King Saul um, previously had offered sacrifices without waiting for Samuel to get there, and that was considered one of his sins. Um, I don't know. It seemed it seemed a little odd to me to review that story and see that David was also act, offering sacrifices as king. And wondered, what was the difference? Right. I well, I mean, if you read also in, I believe, lo- late chapters of First Samuel, he also plunders the Amalekites, which is the other crime that Saul was accused of for, you know, and, th- and thereby lost the kingship. Right. So it, it's a bizarre world, First and Second Samuel. 
one thing, David, that uh, First Chronicles adds to that is that David also actually designed Solomon's temple. Right. I mean, which is a, a bizarre little bit. You know, I, I had spent years only reading the Samuel versions of it. it. It wasn't until seminary that I read the Chronicles account. And, you know, the last thing that David does in Chronicles is sits down with Solomon and lays out the dimensions of the Jerusalem temple. And, I, you know, it just kind of blew my mind that that was sitting there the whole time and I'd never been aware of it. Well, it was a project that David wanted to undertake, but was told he could not. So, I mean, in spite of the fact that he couldn't build a house of cedar for God, um, you know, I think it's perfectly in character for him to have still been doodling sketches on a napkin. <laughs> you know, I've always thought of the um, story of the Hebrew monarchy like the story of Zeus and the frogs. Do you guys know that story? It's been a few years. All right. Well, I'll refresh your memory. It's one of Aesop's fables. The frogs all get together, and they decide they, they want a king to rule them. So they beg Zeus uh, to, to send them a king. And uh, he resists, but they get so annoying in their request, they keep going back to him. And finally, he sends them this heron to be their king, and the heron does what herons do <laughs> and eats every single one of them. <laughs> and the moral of that fable is that you should be careful what you wish for. And, you know, likewise, the Israelites demand a king from God. And the very first one they get is Saul, who oscillates between righteousness and wickedness before finally just going off the deep end. He's very, I think, very clearly mentally ill toward the end of his life. And for the, for the whole history of Israel, they have fewer than ten good kings and the rest just rip the country in half and they end up getting everyone exiled to Persia and Babylon and it seems pretty clear to me that kingship wasn't really what God had in mind for Israel uh, although obviously God makes the best of a bad situation with David and Solomon and, and a few other ones Josiah I think is, is a good king mm -hmm. mostly they're pretty bad you think of that heron eating all the frogs <laughs> Well, Michael, since you're, you've turned us towards Aesop, a Greek, uh, let's go to another Greek, Homer. I mean, one of the things that makes the Iliad so interesting uh, is that, among others, Achilles and Odysseus and Menelaus and Agamemnon all get called Basileus, king, in the text of the poem. Uh, what are all these guys kings of, and who's in charge here, and what does this text tell us about kingship in another part of the ancient world? Well, the first and most obvious thing it tells us is that being a king then wasn't like being George III. Right. Because Greece at that time isn't a unified state. Each king um, rules over his own smallish territory. So Odysseus, he's famously the king of Ithaca. And I mm -hmm. looked it up, and Ithaca is a 45-square-mile island out in the Ionian Sea. So he's really closer to, like, the governor of Delaware than a king. <laughs> The, the way we think of, you know, I mean, it's not like he rules over all the land. He rules over a tiny island. Menelaus right. is the king of Sparta, and Sparta is, you know, fairly well known because of 300. And that's a city-state. And Agamemnon, who largely appears to be in charge in the Iliad, seems to have been the king of both Mycenae and Argos. And I think he's in charge because he's the one who brings all the kings of the various city-states together to fight Troy. Not necessarily because they all bow to his power, just because he's, he's the one who initiated this little mission. Right. And, and Achilles is the king of the uh, Myrmidons, who, and they don't even seem to have a home one. They're just this big group of wandering warriors for hire. So, at any rate, reading about all of that makes me wonder if kingship kind of follows religion. Because, you know, the kings have a pantheon of gods rather than a singular mm, okay. god. And so they have a variety of kings, all of whom have limited powers the way the Greek gods have limited powers. And maybe when Christianity comes along, so does the notion of supreme kingship. But I'm, I'm by no means a historian, and least of all a historian uh, of the ancient world. Although, I mean, there are precedents before that, but what you say makes sense because the sort of paradigmatic supreme king in the ancient world is the Persian emperor. Uh, and, you know, they are more or less, if we believe Herodotus, taken with Zarathustra, or Zoroastrianism, there we go, uh, which is a dualistic religion rather than a pantheistic. So, I mean, I, I think that what you're saying makes some good sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dualistic religion in which you've only really got one good option. Right, right, right. You got a, <laughs> Yeah, I, I should have said that, David. You've got a good power and an evil power, and, you know, most people are going to pick the good power because Milton hasn't come along yet, and the Romantics haven't misread him. 
Right. <laughs> well, it's better to reign in Persia than serve in Greece. There you go. <laughs> Well, David, I, I don't want to dwell too long there because I do want to get to you guys, uh, to the, to your specialties. Uh, so, I mean, flying ahead, we're going ahead probably a thousand years. Uh, we have to have something to say about the city that would have no king, namely Rome. Mm. Uh, on one end of the Roman Republic, we have Junius Brutus, who drives out uh, Tarquinius Superbus, the last of the kings. On the other end of the Republic, we have Marcus Brutus, uh, his descendant, who assassinates one of his closest friends and comrades at arms who would set himself up as king. David, why did they hate kings so much? I'm going to have to plead. I'm not a classicist, but I have taken some Shakespeare. And, and he so is a classist. Of, yeah. Well, most of what, <laughs> <laughs> most of what uh, I, I know about these Brutuses come from, comes from Shakespeare. Um, okay. The rape of Lucrece um, and well, Julius Caesar. Obviously, um, uh, according to the uh, the 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 Tarquin the Tarquin family of kings, uh, the House of Tarquin is, um, so far as I know, largely legendary. There are lots of stories about them. Um, I, I don't I don't know how just how much of that is you know fading off into. Uh, fading off into legend and or or is actually history. Right. Most modern historians consider them sort of legendary bad guys. There probably was a guy named Tarquin, but he probably wasn't uh, you know, Livy's Tarquin. Right. Well the story is that uh you know during during the reign of the last Tarquin king, uh you have various aristocratic families, important families, which uh apparently the Tarquins uh kept an eye on. And would uh, would try to, you know, shut down the families that looked like they were getting a little too powerful, a little too, little too influential. Any anyone that might look like they might be a threat. And so you have uh, this fellow named uh, Lucius Junius Brutus, who gets called Brutus the Brute, um, uh, because uh, not because he's brutal in the sense of of you know horrifically violent, but because he acts like a dumb animal. Um, mm -hmm. he, he's kind of playing dumb and therefore he stays alive. Um, the mistake of the Tarquins was in uh, the, uh, the, the son of the last, uh, Tarquin King, uh, hears of, uh, the, the beauty and virtue, uh, virtue of Lucretia, wife of an important man named Calatinus. Um, and he goes, uh, tries to seduce her, and in the end rapes her. Again, I'm relying an awful lot on Shakespeare, not on Livy. <laughs> well, Shakespeare's relying on Livy. So far, you're right. following Livy's outline. Okay, good. Good for you, Shakespeare. Um, though Shakespeare's <laughs> version has more night-wandering weasels than Livy's probably does. Granted. Um, love the night-wandering weasels. Um, so in the end... Uh, the, the Tarquin prince, the son of the, of the Tarquin king, um, rapes Lucretia, who then uh, uh, commits suicide. And this, uh, this egregious abuse of royal power um, spurs, you know, the, many of the important Romans to, you know, to say, okay, enough of, the, enough of this king – and in fact, enough of these kings, and heck, enough of kings entirely. And so they drive the House of Tarquin out, and um, Brutus establishes a, you know, a no more kings government. Uh, the Roman Senate is now the head of the Roman state, and uh, Brutus and Lucretia's, uh, Lucretia's widower, Collatinus, are the first two consuls of the Senate. That is, they're the, the elected leaders of the Senate. Right, military leaders. Right. Um, I, I guess chief executives. Um, mm -hmm. so that's, that's the first Brutus. The second Brutus comes when, uh, Julius Caesar, um, the Roman general who, um, uh, was steadily growing in, uh, in influence and popularity, uh, seemed to some, uh, some of the prominent Romans, uh, very, very close to deciding he wanted to be king. Um, even though he had, I believe, publicly refused 
crowns. Um, because he was a Roman. Because he's a Roman. <laughs> um, still, it seemed dangerously close. Now, in, in Shakespeare's version, um, Brutus is manipulated into this. Um, you know, uh, someone is, has left le- letters at the foot of uh, a statue of the original Brutus. And so uh, uh, Marcus Brutus, in this case... Um, I, I, I guess feels some some kind of a familial responsibility to make sure that Rome doesn't go monarchy. Um, anyway, uh, so the assassination of Julius Caesar happens, which um, was not terribly popular. And uh, even though initially the assassins were given some clemency, still uh, Brutus runs and uh, is eventually, I guess, hunted down. So. Right, and the, of course there's a grand battle at the city of Philippi, mm-hmm. uh, which later becomes an important city in the Roman Empire, and the city to which Paul writes one of his more famous letters. Yeah, so back to the Bible. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Michael, I mean, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about that strong aversion to monarchy when we get to our discussion of America, but I mean, do you have anything else to add to the Roman discussion i know almost nothing about roman history so i was just enjoying learning from uh, david <laughs> all right well I'll, I'll chime in just a little bit then and just say that yes please you know really rome is unique among the ancient peoples in their just hatred of monarchy as a concept uh even greece where you have democratic athens uh they still have an office in the city called the uh the king archon you know, so I mean, you can still have the title of king in the city, even though functionally it's a democracy. The Greek city-states, you know, flirt with monarchies in various periods, but the Romans, I mean, from the beginning of the Republic all the way up, really through the Imperium of Augustus, uh, just have this deep-seated hatred of monarchy uh, that really gets picked up in the Renaissance and becomes the basis for. Uh, what we think of as modern republicanism, and we'll talk about some that some more a little bit later. Uh, but thank you, Mike. Uh, thank you, David. Pardon me. Uh, yeah. But Michael, I'm going to give you the other Bible question while we're in this Roman period. Uh, early in the Gospels, there's an announcement that there's going to be a new king of the Jews born, and this sends Herod the Great, the king of Palestine, into a murderous rage. And towards the end of the Gospels, of course, atop the most famous cross in Roman history. There's a sign that says, King of the Jews. When people talked in the first century about Jesus as king, uh, what did they mean, and how did that advent of Christ affect the patterns of kingship that we've been talking about from the ancient world? Yeah, well, King of the Jews was a fairly common contemporary term that the Jews used to describe their future Messiah, who, of course, they thought was going to be a political leader instead of the, the Son of God in any biological sense and who they, they thought would bring peace to the world and ascendancy to Israel. But the, the Messiah, in Jewish terms, is not an immortal or deified being. He is um, just a man chosen by God to bring world peace, and that's going to be that. Um, and, and certainly that's what they were expecting in the first century. So the idea that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, would be executed in a humiliating manner on the cross was really ridiculous, and that's what that sign is all about. It's, mm-hmm. it's. I think it's the Romans mocking the Jews as much as they're mocking Christ himself. Absolutely. But it seems to me that Jesus throws off that whole political system. His disciples pretty clearly, Would, would I think, you say he's thrown everything off balance? Is there a joke I'm missing there, Nathan? Oh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, good man is oh, hard to find. Oh, that's right. Yeah, see, uh, you, you can see how off I am today. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I threw you an American lit softball there. and I hope my no comps go better than that. <laughs> anyway, anyway the, the disciples pretty clearly expect him to take over the Roman Empire by some sort of political means, maybe even violent means. But in, in point of fact, he shows very little interest in the politics of his day, which is one of the very attractive things about the Christ of the Gospels. Uh, to me, anyway. And and that's why I'm skeptical whenever the Christian right or the Christian left start talking about how Jesus would vote, because I'm not sure Jesus would vote at all. He, he, he certainly didn't mess around with contemporary politics in any serious way. He seems to reject the notion of political kingship 
as he rejects the, the notion of political government itself, he's not saying there's something wrong with kingship, just that it's not his mission to reform it or to reform the republic or to uh, help the, the Jewish people ascend in any kind of political order. And instead, he promotes a spiritual kingship with him at the, the center of it. And it's, it's a kind of a monotheistic kingship he has absolute and sovereign power, but he uses it benevolently. But Nathan, um, you're our theological expert. Am I missing something? Have I committed some sort of blasphemy here? No, no, I don't think so. I, I, one thing that I would <laughs> add to what you said uh, is that, you know, this King of the Jews title, yes, it was a messianic title, uh, but it was also the title that Mark Antony actually gave to Herod the Great when he installed him in, in Jerusalem. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so I mean that's why Herod has a giant freak out because the people that Mark <laughs> Antony had one of them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the people that Mark Antony had fought a bloody war to drive out of Palestine sent messengers, Magi, of course in Herodotus, those are a class of Persian wise men. Uh they send Magi over and they say, Oh yes, there's a king of the Jews born and you know, Herod's thought, Matthew didn't what? Yeah, I, I, I beg your pardon, sir. There's already a king of Jews. And it is me. <laughs> so I mean, that's the you know that's the background behind the massacre of the innocents is that this is at the tail end of a grand and bloody war between the Romans and the Persians, and you know all of a sudden these magi show up and say, oh by the way, there's a new king of the Jews. <laughs> and incidentally, I, and this is just a little bit of trivia, and then we'll get on to some some medieval stuff for David. Uh, there were, you know, the, the Parthian empire during the Roman period was not a unified culture by any means, the way that the Roman empire was, uh, they were not united under this sort of Greco Roman intellectual hegemony. All right. Instead, what you got is a series of independent kingdoms, some of which were ruled by Jews. Uh, so in other words, you know, when these magi from the Parthian empire come, you know, I mean, Herod was quite quite right to hear that as a threat. Now, that doesn't excuse, of course, the massacre of the innocents, and it doesn't diminish the theological import of what's happening in Bethlehem at the moment. But it does give you some historical background for what's going on. Now, as far as the uh, the kingship, I mean, theologically, Michael, I think you hit it square on. David, do you want to add anything before we get medieval? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I, I think Michael's... Michael summed it up pretty well. The o the only thing that I would uh, that I would point to is that the the church. Um, uh, I th I think you know Christ during his life was uh, directing attention away from the notion of of him ta of of his disciples taking up swords now and establishing a kingdom now, but uh, the after the death and resurrection and some clarity came amongst the apostles as to. Uh, what's what's going on here? What's the mission? Um, that there is uh, that there is a hope uh, of a kingdom, but it's not a it's not a a city of earth. It's a city of heaven. Right. Um, and there is uh, you know there is there is a perfect king <laughs> who mm -hmm. does rule perfectly and and will rule perfectly. And uh, one day his earth his his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right. Right. And just to tease our uh, our upcoming episode on the Christian right and the Christian le left, you guys uh, generally agree that Christ is uninterested in politics, right? In the in the New Testament, I would probably qualify that statement, but I would agree that I'm not entirely impressed with the Christian right or the Christian left. <laughs> well, we'll let you qualify the statement when we get to that episode. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Well, David, you knew this moment was coming. Uh, so I know that you're ready for it. After the Roman Empire, uh, we get the era that many folks think of first when they think of kings, namely what we call the Middle Ages, what they would have called right now. Uh, <laughs> as long as you promise to say kinning at some point, I'm just going to let you take off here and talk a little bit about medieval kings. Right. Um, well, a medieval king was a guy who wore a pointy gold hat. <laughs> um, no. Uh Okay, what we think of as medieval kingship has actually got roots um, from a lot of different streams and including some things that we've already talked about, right? So let's look at, I mean, for instance, Charlemagne, all right, the great Frankish king. He's crowned the Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope. 
So in one sense, his kingship is drawing upon, uh, you know, that that monarchical uh, gravitas of the Roman Empire. All right. This is 800 yeah. A.D., right, David? Yeah, round about. He's, okay. he's, you know, he's got his eye on that. Um, now, I've also read that within the social circle of his court, that Charlemagne was referred to by the nickname David, as in King hmm. David. So... You know, he was also looking at, um, you know, the the Hebrew Bible, looking at, you know, what descriptions of earthly rulers who have God's uh, approval, um, what 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 those kinds of kings uh, do, how they how they live. Um, perhaps uh, he he read it a little too literally, and that's why Charlemagne had a boo-coodle of wives and concubines. <laughs> um, Anyway, he didn't allow his daughters to marry, um, resulting in uh, quite scandalous behavior. Anyway, his his much more pious son Louis sent them all to like convents and stuff. Um, still, there's another. Well, in addition to the Roman and Hebrew leadings, um, Charlemagne also kept up his sort of native Frankish traditions. Uh, for one thing, everywhere he went, he went armed. He always had a sword with him. Um, and this goes back to, uh, well, uh, what, what's often called Germanic kingship, which is, uh, which is to say forms of rulership that were typical of the barbarian peoples who spoke languages that we group linguistically as Germanic now. Um, not that they were all Germans, um, that kind of thinking went out with the Nazis, but, um, <laughs> you know, just want to make it clear that when I say Germanic kingship, that's not what I mean. Um, North European. So, yes, nor, Northern European, but not like Finnish. <laughs> anyway. Um, we've, got, we've got to keep the Scandinavians out of it. Well, they're Germanic too. They, I mean, yeah, they, they've got a Germanic language as well, and they, they followed this model. But uh, can any of you guess where I'm going to turn for my Germanic model of kingship? Otto von Bismarck. No. <laughs> Beowulf. Beowulf, of course. It's my favorite. Um, all right, so... Beowulf begins with the story of a legendary Danish king, shield shaving. Uh, what's whom, the old English word for king? Uh, and gonna get there. The poet's okay. Okay. <laughs> the poet has a high opinion of him, uh, and he says it in the phrase "That was good kuning." Yay! Yay! Um, translated, that was a good king. Now, which is kind of funny because up to that point, what has shield shaving done in Beowulf. Basically, he's conquered everyone who lived around the Danes and made them pay tribute. <laughs> so, first trait of a, you know, of a Germanic king, um he's he's a military leader in uh a very uh you know, hands-on kind of way. Um which is not different, uh, not that different from uh, from what we see in Hebrew, the Hebrew kingship of King David, but a bit different from what we would see in the, a model of someone like Solomon. Mm -hmm. um, but interesting thing, what does he do with the tribute? He gives it away to his warriors as gifts and rewards for valor, and that leads us to another Anglo-Saxon uh, word for king, which is a ring giver. Um, your your king was your ring giver. He was your gold giver, your gold friend. Um, he was the one who gave you stuff when you were brave in battle. Um, so generosity is another side of Germanic kingship. Um, there is one interesting clarification. Uh, shield shavings, oh, let's see, great-great-grandson Hrothgar um, is also described initially as a good king who was generous, but there are two things he can't give away and that's the common land and men's lives, which is commonly uh, taken as a, re as a reference to slaves, that, that a king could not arbitrarily give away slaves. Mm. Um, if we look in Anglo-Saxon law, um, it seems like that there, there are different kinds of slaves, and sometimes a man was a slave for, the com for committing crimes. Um, and therefore, if you know, I, I guess it might make sense that uh, if you're if if you're a slave, as as some kind of a penal uh, uh, punishment, then uh, it wouldn't make sense as uh, as as property. Um, so anyway, 
there were limits on what kind of property the Germanic king could dispose of at his whim. Now, this changes in the feudal system, you know, uh, which gets to England with the Normans, but was, you know, kind of already developing in, in Europe. Um, when the remuneration of a king's military support, instead of, uh, instead of being loot, it's land. So a king's knights, they get land. They get, uh, uh, well, I guess, I guess what we something comparable to what uh, in in the south was was a plantation. You know, they would get mm-hmm. you know farms with fields, and they would also get the people who worked there. Um, which we'll go to another fictional setting here. This is uh, one of the reasons for unrest amongst the commoners in the Robin Hood story. Um, which, you know, I think we're generally familiar with. Um, The farmers who a few generations ago, before the conquest, had worked common land, now worked land uh, that was owned by local nobles. And so they had to pay, uh, you know, they had to pay, uh, you know, give crops that ultimately would go to the crown. They had to, uh, they had to give crops that was going to go to their own lord. And they had to deal with the the arbitrary behavior of those people. Um, Also, the forests that used to be common were now the king's forests. And that's the thing, one of the big things that Robin Hood's upset about. You know, not just anybody can shoot a deer. And down with that scurvy Prince John! Yeah! All the world will sing of an English king a thousand years from now. And not because he passed some laws or had that lofty brow. While Bonnie Good King Richard leads the great crusade he's on. We'll all have to slave away for that good-for-nothing John. Incredible as he is inept, whenever the history books are kept, they'll call him the phony king of England. Anyway, um, what leads us back to kingship is that it wasn't just the commons who were peeved with Prince John or King John. It wasn't just uh, the commons and Robin Hood. It was also the nobles. And this came to a head in 1215 when John's barons bullied him and is signing the Magna Carta, which uh, curtailed a lot of his uh, arbitrary exercises of power, um, including, you know, taking people's sisters and giving them into marriage to people that he liked. And, uh, you know, if you were, you know, the son of Baron so-and-so and your dad died, you had to pay a heavy fee in order to get your title which should come to you by right of birth and things like that. Um, and so it's not just the Romans who take, took measures to curtail the power of kings, though the English didn't quite take it to the, uh, the level of a Brutus. We're going we're gonna to have to wait till Cromwell before we get that. Mm-hmm. But we're, gonna, we're not going to talk about Cromwell today. No, we're not going to have time to do Cromwell. <laughs> I, I, I think I've said enough about the Middle Ages, unless unless there's any questions or additions you guys All right. want to bring in. Yeah, let, let me do a follow-up question real quick. I mean, David, uh, one of the things about the ideology of kings, and of course I say that as a modern, uh, is that there is a divine mandate from the Christian God for them to be kings. Uh, mm. I mean, where did they derive that? And I mean... Obviously, Romans 13 is there. How did they decide Romans 13 fell on this bloodline and not that one? Um, well, one of the one of the other traits of Germanic uh, kingship, which I, and and I'm tapping into um, some some scholarship that's uh, kind of herring off into that anthropology that works with um, with things that aren't quite fully documented. Um, but it seems that Germanic kingship also had a had a sacral element mm-hmm. that the kings had lineages that that uh, they had genealogies that could be traced back to um, divine or semi-divine uh, heroes. Uh, their okay. great great granddaddy was a god or the son of a god, right? Um, we see this in Anglo-Saxon genealogies when they're tracing when they're tracing their line back to. Uh, uh, well, uh, Scandinavian gods like Odin, but then they'll push it that back that much further and trace it back to Noah and Adam, right? Okay. Um, so 
even before Romans and the whole idea that the that the king uh, the king gets the sword from God, you know mm-hmm. that the rulers were ordained by God. Uh, the the Germanic the the tradition of Germanic kingship already came primed with the idea that kings have a religious justification um, through their genealogy. So, I, right. I guess I guess that would be the answer to that. All right. Well, at great personal pain, I have decided to skip my own period, Elizabeth I, James I, as interesting as they are. And also uh, that way you didn't have to prepare an answer. Well, yeah. Uh, but also <laughs> I thought we could send it forward to Michael. You know, returning to that Roman aversion to kingship, uh, if I remember my American history right, and I might not, uh, the early American Republic flirted with the possibility of crowning Washington as King George I of America. Uh, Michael, why didn't they, and what measures are there, or should there be, uh, to keep America from going monarchical? And while you're in the neighborhood, uh, go ahead and take a couple minutes to talk about where our decision to go Roman instead of getting medieval influenced our literary tradition. Sure. Well, I mean, for one thing, much of the buildup to the Revolutionary War was filled with people just completely trashing King George III, and with him, kingship in general. So Thomas Paine spends a good 30 or 40 pages in Common Sense talking about why kingship is such a terrible system and inherently corrupted and I, I, he brings up he he brings up the fact that the Israelites had to beg God for a king and God didn't really want to give one to them. And he's not the only one. I mean a lot of a lot of early Early American writers were very, very anti-kingship as a, as a general principle. And the philosophical roots of the revolution lie in democracy to the extent where knowing, where crowning Washington king would have been really repugnant to most people, I think. I, I've heard that story, too. I, I've, never, I've never read anything from that era that suggested it, but I'm also not a colonial specialist, so that doesn't okay. mean it didn't happen. All right. Fair but enough. in fact, by the first, by the time of the first presidential race, the first actual presidential race, because, you know, Washington was voted in unanimously, essentially, by right. the Electoral College. It's the only time that's ever happened. But by the time of the first actual race, which was between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, King had really become an epithet. In that big biography of uh, John Adams by uh, David McCulloch, there's this story about how ugly the, the the campaign was, and the folks on Jefferson's side basically said that John Adams wanted to rule America like a king. <laughs> and, and, of course, in return, Adams' people called Jefferson a progenitor of mulattoes. And uh, I don't know, both of those things might have been true. Certainly one of them was. <laughs> but the, wow. f- the fact that Adams enacted the Alien and Sedition Acts when he was in office, must have made people think that maybe Jefferson was right. Because those acts really increased the power of the executive branch. Kind kind of the way some of our bills from the past nine years, since 9-11, have done. So I'm not sure how seriously anyone considered making Washington or any other president king, because the word monarchy sounded to people then the way the word socialism does to some people today. I, I do think... I don't think we're in danger of sliding into an actual kingship, but I worry sometimes about the increasing power of the executive branch. I thought maybe the Democrats would uh, lessen some of that power that that Bush kind of seized after 9-11, you know, for, for not terrible reasons, but the power of the executive branch just keeps keeps growing to the point where I don't know. Maybe maybe in a hundred years, if America still exists, that position will look more like a monarchy. But uh, as far as the importance of democracy in American literature, I don't think you can overstate that case. Nearly everything we still read from the colonial era has to do with the supremacy of democracy to monarchy. I mean, that goes without saying. But even once mm-hmm. you move forward into the 19th century... Most of our canonical writers are, are moved by a, a really democratic impulse. And I'll give you one example. Ralph Waldo Emerson um, says that everyone has the spark of divine creativity in them. Everybody has Shakespeare's creativity. It's just not everybody has Shakespeare's talent in producing it. 
that's a profoundly democratic idea. It's, it's really inherently yeah, opposed <laughs> to the notion of supreme earthly rulers. And I'm not, I'm not sure what American literature would have looked like if we'd had a system of kings in America, or what it would have, if if it really would have existed at all, in any meaningful way, or if it would have just continued to be kind of an colonial, offshoot of British literature. Colonial British, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do think it's interesting that that's, that story that you told Nathan. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I've heard it too. I've I've heard it pretty much all my life. I, don't I probably know what the source of that it, is. Well, I probably heard it from a textbook. But um, it, it's it's one of those stories that reminds me just how much the stories of founding fathers actually are um, founding myth, not oh, in yeah, not in the their utterly fictional sense, but in the Some these are more. definitely stories that are serving a function to build an identity. And Absolutely. chances are, if you've heard a story about a founding father, it's ninety percent false. And if you've heard it about George <laughs> Washington, it's hundred and fifty percent false. That's a lot wow. of sense. That is. I, Fra- Franklin's another one. They make up a lot of really awesome stories about. And I mean, the most famous is well, and there's Franklin story. Benjamin Franklin made up half of them. Well, the most famous Franklin story is him flying the kite with the with the key, right? And he gets struck by lightning. Just total. A total fabrication, apparently. Well, sure, that, that painting is actually on the cover of the Viking Enlightenment Reader. Yeah, I mean, but it didn't, apparently it didn't happen. I was reading about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm just saying the painting's there. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, but when you hear stories about the Founding Fathers, this is off topic, but when you hear those stories, you should always, uh, you should always assume they're false until proven otherwise, because most of the yeah. time they are. Well, Especially I, I w- Washington, who's a total cipher, I mean... When you, when you hear about Washington's religious views, if anybody tries to say anything about them, I always uh, – that's when I reach right. for my revolver, as they say. Because, <laughs> I mean, apparently just nobody knows anything about Washington's religious views. So people who try to claim him for one side or another uh, – Oh, sure. Everything I've read is a pack of contradictions. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing you can say. Other people's religious views are quite clear. Jefferson's, for example. Right. And I mean, Franklin's. You know exactly what he thinks. Franklin's, sure. too. But Washington, no. Mm-mm. Patrick Henry, we know about him. Yeah, so you, you really can't <laughs> you really can't believe most most of the stories you hear about uh, about the founding fathers. Well, I, well, and just to just to reiterate my point, I mean, I mean, while they may be false, the question to ask about them is not just is this is this history, but why do we keep telling the story? Right. And what is what is the story add to? Uh, the American sense of self-definition. Right, and in the case right. and, of this hypothetical King George story, obviously what it adds is we we as a country were offered the crown and refused it. Right, right. Well, and I, I think it's also interesting that you know we are so thoroughly democratic that we actually have contradictory founding myths about the same historical persons. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. e- even our national myths we have to debate about. <laughs> we, well, we all have to claim the uh, founding fathers for our side. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, and there, there's the core of democracy right there. <laughs> Make up well, whatever any rate, lie guys, you have to. What now? Make up whatever lie you have to. <laughs> I didn't say that, listeners. Farmer did. <laughs> so cynical. I'm just trying well, to rate, remember guys. who who's under the faith poster on a Glenn Beck's wall. It's either I think it's Jefferson or Franklin one. Maybe it's Washington. Oh, you're kidding me. Yeah, yeah, yeah he has faith. Oh, okay, sure, surely he knows not enough not to put Franklin or Jefferson there. I think it Come is on. Franklin. Uh, one of our readers can write in if they'd like. He has three posters, Faith, Hope, and Charity. And, and I think it's those three. I think it's, wow. it's Washington, Jefferson, and Franklin. We could put Franklin under patience. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Well, at any rate, guys, uh, because I'm keeping an eye on time and because I want to steer us away from Glenn Beck as much as possible, uh, to end on a slightly lighter note, uh, although there aren't very many kings in the of the ancient or the medieval or even the early modern sense around, or uh, we really can't escape the vocabulary of kings, and it pops up all over the place in pop culture. Uh, we've got people like Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, Richard Petty, LeBron James. <laughs> they all get called kings. I haven't uh, heard the LeBron want... James sober quit. Uh... Oh, you never heard him called King James? Uh-uh. I've heard oh, yeah, King yeah. Charles, right? Or no, it's Sir Charles, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, Sir Charles. Well, at it's any rate, terrible. I want to just go around the horn here in our last couple minutes. 
Uh, which king, queen, Caesar, or other pop culture monarch do you see is worth a minute or so of Christian humanist time, and why? David, take it away. Well, I mean, you left out the Sultan of Swat, and and I'm gonna just gonna put that down <laughs> to your anti-Orientalist bias, right? Um, <laughs> Leave it to the one of us who doesn't care at all about sports to bring up the Sultan <laughs> of Swat. Well, I, uh, well, I am gonna do a callback though. Um, Jack Kirby, who has been called the King of Comics, um, worked for Marvel, worked for DC, worked for himself, and invented a lot of the uh, a lot of the superhero comics that. Um, you know that are that are most memorable, uh, invented characters, and uh, yeah. So Jack Kirby, King of Comics. All right, Michael, who's your pop culture monarch? Elvis Presley, man. He's not my favorite <laughs> in, in all of history. I mean, there's there's a lot of people I like more than Elvis, but my feeling is if you don't if you don't like at least ten Elvis songs, I have no interest in talking to you. I couldn't name 10 Elvis songs. Oh, David. Oh, David. Well, that's the end of the podcast then because I can't talk to David anymore. And we split because of Elvis. Oh, man. I I, I didn't think it was going to be Elvis. I thought it was going to be something else. Now, but, folks, I'll well. even go to bat for late period Elvis. I'll, I'll, I, would go, I would go to the cross over Suspicious Minds or even like Hunk of Burn and Love. I love Elvis. Yeah, uh, you know, he is, the, he is the king of rock. I'll sing in the ghetto every once in a while. That's a anyway. good song too. <laughs> well, my 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 family and I know that some of you are listening are going to be disappointed that I didn't get to talk Elvis. So I will go. Oh, I'm sorry, Nathan. I didn't. Mean oh, that's to... all right. That's all right. I I will go to the east of Tennessee and I will say I will talk a little bit about Richard Petty, uh, King Richard yeah. of NASCAR. Uh, you know, this is obviously you know the King Richard name echoes through Western culture. Uh, but I mean, it's just kind of fun to have someone who talks like Richard Petty, wears a cowboy hat and sunglasses and drives stock cars referred to as King. So I'm going to go with Richard Petty, King Richard, uh, follow NASCAR. Do you Nathan? Not anymore. I did until my kids were born and I I actually played in fantasy NASCAR leagues. I had no idea. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been to a few races. I've been to a couple in Indianapolis, a couple in Bristol. It's good stuff. I enjoy it. I just don't have time for a three-hour race on a weekend anymore. I went to one at Talladega once. I was uh, 11. Or no, I was uh-huh. nine. And I, uh, I drank so much Mellow Yellow, I threw up all night. That's, that's, my, <laughs> that's my one NASCAR story. That's I, right. I, I, Mellow I Yellow. Did I mention I was born in Alabama? <laughs> no. I, I've been on the track at Talladega. It was pretty neat. They were, they well, were actually marching in a parade at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Oh, I was just saying, if you've dr- ever drank enough mellow yellow to throw up, you might be a redneck. <laughs> good call, good call. Well, at any rate, that is all the vomiting we have time for this week. Uh, I want to thank my fellow hosts, Michael Farmer and David Grubbs. Uh, Michael, we are not going to be recording for next week, but the week after that, what's our topic going to be, good man? We will be talking about the topic my old friend Nate Becker suggested, dogma and dogmatism and doctrine and what have you. The importance of dogma in the Christian um, the Christian life and when it can go too far. All right. And, uh, although I don't think that's our, that's our modern problem, but we'll talk about that more in two weeks. How are you going to work I, pop culture into that? I, I'm not. I, I guess I guess I'll just have to resign. And I, I should really point out, Sam Mulberry in no way said that our other episodes weren't good. It's just my diseased <laughs> mind. That's how that that's the immediate thing I went to. <laughs> I, I should well, say anyway. I know I know he didn't actually mean that. Nor, <laughs> nor did well, anybody if, else who heard it read it that way. It was just it was just me. I'm sure. <laughs> if Sam Mulberry or anyone else wants to email us, that email address is the Christian Humanist at gmail.com our web address is www.christianhumanist.org slash chb as in blog uh this is nathan gilmore and on behalf of david grubbs and michael farmer i'm bidding you good day saying let your sins be strong let your faith be stronger it's good to be king if just for a while there in velvet yeah to give them a smile it's good to get high and never come down 
King of it!